Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. So we recorded a video for one of our other programs right before we did this. You and I have been doing a lot of recording this afternoon. And when... Why are you just looking at me like that? I'm just waiting to hear what you're saying. Oh, well, I felt you're... like 20 minutes earlier wasn't a lot. Did you have more after this episode that mm. I'm unaware of? Oh, so two recordings is mm. no big deal for well, you. Well, I'm just saying just like 20 minutes it on out. and then an hour. Like, yeah, that's I'll a lot. Up, but I'll come up with a third thing for us to do. I, I'm fine stopping here. Really? This you're is sure? good. I well, just... I, I just bring it up because I thought it was funny. I had planned to do the podcast recording and then the video, but you came in and really specifically said you wanted to do the video before the podcast. And I was just curious, is that so you can take your bra off at the end of a long, hot day? <laughs> no, sometimes these podcasts make me cry and it's not oh, like I look super I glamorous with all of my mutt, you know, mucho amounts of makeup, but I didn't want to look haggard and puffy eyed. I don't know why I couldn't think of that. I don't know why you know, my we've mind done immediately this. went to your boobs. Okay, well, because that's where your brain lives, but also you've only like, we've been doing the marriage evolution videos and podcast recording on a lot of overlapping days for many months now and you still haven't figured that out. You're right. It's pretty sad, and it's really judgy of me to say that for you. Not very smart. Yeah. Well, I'm being judgy, but I'm like, why are you not figuring What a great fit that you're being judgy in a podcast episode about judgment. Before we get to that, I am so excited. We have confirmed that Amber Hollingsworth, da-da-da-da, she is the mystery guest that we, I think we alluded to this last week, but we didn't say her name because it hadn't been confirmed with her yet. But she is going to be on a very soon upcoming podcast episode taking questions from some of our listeners who we are in contact with. So the deal is we will be on a big Zoom call with Amber and lots of other people from around the country, maybe even some other countries. And they will ask questions of her. She'll answer directly. We'll record the whole thing. We'll use the audio portion of the recording for a podcast episode, and so more Amber Hollingsworth time. Are you excited about that, Sherry? I, I am excited. She's great. She's so down to earth. She is. Practical. Yeah, well, and, and I honest. know she talks about a lot of really tough stuff. Yeah. But like you said, she's practical about it, and she's got a really good head on her shoulders, just kind of way to deal with it. Yeah. And it really puts you to, at ease. Yeah, she doesn't say what you so... want to hear. She says what you need to hear. Yeah, but it in a way that... You're not as worried. Is it the southern accent? I think it probably is. I love it. I, I know. love it so much. That sweet tea accent. It kind of yeah. makes everything just a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, Amber Hollingsworth, she's been on an episode of ours. You can search by name to find it in the past. And she does the Put the Shovel Down YouTube channel, which is wildly popular for the loved ones of alcoholics. So check her out in advance or just wait. You know, because soon there'll be an episode that comes out with her answering questions. Pretty great. Right. Speaking of questions, are you ready for the listener question today, Sherry? Sure thing. I've heard you two talk about your faith. Based on what you've said, I am guessing you are Lutheran. Am I right? My chair is squeaky. Sorry if you can hear that. Uh, Lutheran. She thinks we're Lutheran. Well, I think they're, you know, a lot of the Protestant 
things kind of overlap. So Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, I think they all kind of work together. We've actually not gone to a I haven't gone to a Lutheran church growing up. Have you? Yeah, but I but only because there were so many I moved around a lot as a kid and there were lots of times when we were in a town and we hadn't figured the church thing out yet and so we would go to lots of churches and I went to churches with friends. I I I've shared this before but I was born Greek Orthodox but I never learned to speak Greek. So I was about 10 years old and my parents looked at each other and said these kids are going to be heathens. Well, if just, we don't get them to a church where they, they understand don't know what the they're language. Be talking, yeah, exactly. So from that, from there on, my family, we went to lots of different churches, lots of different denominations. When we moved to a new town, we just found a church that my parents liked the sermons and the minister, and that's where we went. So no, no real strong affiliation. However, we are pretty strongly affiliated now since you work at the church that yes. we attend, and we've been, how long have we been at this Methodist church? We have been at this United Methodist Church, so, oh my goodness, like 14 and a half, 15 years. Yeah. We had just baptized our third child at, child at a Presbyterian church, and there was some remodeling, and we didn't agree with the path they were taking, and so we wanted to shop around. They spent it's, a lot of money. They spent money. a lot of wasted yeah. money, and they kicked out some programs. They kicked out some really good outreach for the community, and that's so, what hurt. So we went ahead and switched because, I mean, that's one thing that's nice about not having a strong affiliation. If you if something isn't going well or doesn't feel right, it's pretty easy for us to switch. Yeah. But So, so we're United Methodist. We're not Global Methodist. We're not Free Methodist. We're United Methodist. Why are you making that distinction? Uh, because of the situation that's going on in the Methodist community about um, openly gay pastors being able to be pastors. And so the global church believes that we should follow to the letter of the law, the Book of Discipline. And the United Methodists, most of them are kind of going towards there needs to be some changes and... Um, the global pandemic happened, so one of the conferences was missed in, and the time before that for the world conference, well, they didn't okay, agree. you're getting into the weeds. Yeah. The United Methodists think it's okay for a gay person to be a pastor. The global Methodists don't. Yeah. Thank God for the Southern Baptists providing us cover during this politically charged, <laughs> and embar- frankly embarrassing. I'm embarrassed that it's a question in this day and age. And so, uh, at the risk of getting too political here, I think... Whatever you are, whatever your sexual orientation or your gender identity is, if you're a good leader, you should be able to lead. Yeah. And we shouldn't give a rip who you love. And so I'm very frustrated. But the United Methodist Church, which is what we are, believes that it's fine for a gay person to be a minister. Yeah. Well, I also just wanted to... And, and sorry, while I'm taking a shot at the Southern Baptists, they are kicking out denominations for letting women be in leadership roles... Even because, if they're straight women. Straight women can't even be leaders in the Southern Baptist. Because that's been their book of order for many decades. Yeah. Um, and I was just pointing out, because not all global Methodists or people that believe that believe there shouldn't be gay pastors, openly gay pastors. They just believe we should follow the book of discipline to the letter. Yeah. And that's caused riff. Yeah. Well, I, I want to further answer this listener's question who's probably like, oh my God, I just asked you if you're a Lutheran. <laughs> I was going to be quick. But I've got a little more. Um, I, I have had, and I think 
that this is pertinent because this is all stuff that has happened for me faith journey-wise since getting sober. And one of the things that sobriety provided for me was a clear, clearer mind and an availability of brain cells to think about these things because I spent so much of my time as an active alcoholic working on rules, trying to decide whether or not I drank too much, trying to recover from bad weekends, trying to apologize to you, trying to come up with new rules, trying to decide again. I'm comparing myself to somebody else and saying, I'm not really an alcoholic. Look at that person. That person sleeps in the gutter. That person's an alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic. And so that mental gymnastics is gone from my life and I have more room to consider other things. And I think spirituality is an important part of sobriety and recovery. So that's why I don't mind spending just a few minutes on it. Um, I believe in God. I believe Jesus was an important dude. I don't know about that son of God thing. Maybe. Maybe not. Which is pretty rare for you to hear someone who goes to a Christian denomination to say. But um, I think he was really important and really smart. And I think his focus on peace and love as opposed to, you know, winning people over with, with war... I think is beautiful. And this so, is going to be an interesting conversation afterwards because I have lots of questions for you. We've talked about this. I know. I just want to ask you another question. Well, you can ask right now. No. Okay. Well, everyone well, has to wonder. They say son of God, but oftentimes it's just God incarnate yeah. in a different version and a different form of himself. Yeah. So try to explain that to... Three through 12 year olds. Yeah, because you're the children's minister in the church. (laughs) Good luck with that. He's both God and a man. Yeah. Yeah, and the Trinity. But I think the the thing that I like about being a United Methodist is because questioning and being open and community, not even being in the church on Sundays, but being community and meeting outside of the church building is a very important thing. But I think that allows us to have less judgment. Yeah. Because we are open to that. Because the founder of the Methodist religion really believed in community, meeting outside of the Sunday services, the Sabbath, not you know, lots of study groups, lots of special interest well, groups, and that makes me just very happy that we know that community is what helps you have self-esteem, connection, and in our support in recoveries. And when I have questions about things, I love to just kind of rap with our minister about stuff like this. I don't think I've ever told her I I don't know about this whole Jesus thing. I, I think I would be sheepish about having that conversation. But I've talked about questioning. You, as the children's minister, allow me once a month to give a children's sermon in our church, and I've told the kids right in front of the whole congregation, including the minister, that it's okay to question your faith and to have, you know, when bad things happen, to wonder why did God let that happen and to be open about that. So it's a very, yeah, I mean, here's the bottom line. I think humans have done more harm than good in religion. I think uh, spirituality and a belief in a higher power, in my case, that's someone that I call God. I don't, you know, it's a spirit. It's not a person. Um, I think that's wonderful. But I think that, you know, the way organized religion wrecks things is really despicable. I mean, just look at the debate between evolution and creation. I don't understand why there's not some room for both, and I don't understand why evolutionists believe that creationists aren't following science. There's a lot of science that points 
to that defends the creation argument. It's like, oh, just another thing to be polarized about as opposed to look at the evidence and have intelligent conversations. But really, it's the evangelical... Like, I'm embarrassed at times to admit that I'm a Christian when some evangelical has supported uh, something that's just really god-awful. <laughs> I just watched... Go ahead. I was just going to say that I watched... I saw a funny meme the other day... Um, on Instagram, and it said, the worst thing to happen to religion was humans. Yeah. Oh, I think it's so true. Yeah, and I thought that was funny. So true. I just watched a, a documentary about the Duggars. Remember the Duggars? The, they had 19 kids, I think. Is, yeah. Maybe they topped out at 20, 19 or 20, mm-hmm. something like that, from Arkansas. And they were part of the IBLP, which stands for, I wrote it down, the Institute for Basic Life Principles. Oh, my God. This cult did horrendous, horrendous things to people. Children especially. And, um, yeah, so that's another, yet another of the many, many examples. Uh, I've watched Scientology documentaries too. Uh, but the many, many examples of where something pure gets glommed up by humans looking for power and money and leadership and all this stuff. The bottom line is, I think for us alcoholics, whether it's my side, the drinkers, or your side, the loved ones, the people that have experienced alcoholism have dealt with so much pain in our lives. That has really formed my opinion about religion and about spirituality because I don't want to see anyone face pain. I I think people deserve to be happy and people deserve to be at peace. And so whether that is someone who has risen through the ranks in the Methodist church and has proven successful and is a good leader and happens to have a different sexual orientation, I don't think they should be punished for loving the person that they love. Um, I don't think that women who are leaders should be punished in the Baptist church, the Southern Baptist church. I just don't think there's any time for judgment and intolerance. And you, you see the direction society is going. This is actually something that I talked to our minister about this past Sunday. You see the direction that our society is going. It's going to get there regardless of whether, um, you know, people that are stuck in no longer ideologies that no longer really serve the current society and population, whether they stay stuck or not. We are going to be accepting of all people, all gender identities, all orientations, that is going to happen, guaranteed, in the next decade or so. And so those that are resisting, what is it they said in Star Trek about the or the org? Resistance is futile. Mm-hmm. Yep, a little bit of a Star Trek dork over here. So That's why I didn't answer, because I didn't know. Yeah. Not a dork. Not a dork, Star Trek or otherwise. But, you know, tolerance is just the way to go. And so, I thought this was a great listener question. That listener's like, oh my God, way TMI. But I thought it was a great listener question to dovetail into the topic for today, which is the role of judgment in addiction. You know, we both say, Sherry, that we don't care about what others think of us. You and I both say that. But you really mean it. How do you do it? I do have a sense of, I do care what others think of me. I do care. Thanks for contradicting me right off the top. (laughs) But not to the degree in which it's going to make me 
not make choices that are better for best for me Ooh, or my family. Gonna need you to elaborate there. I like that. So, you know, I don't want to just go in and burn bridges and piss people off and just, you know, I mean, I I flip them the bird every now and then. You know, that's what you want from your children's minister. Flip people the bird when they're acting stupid, but. If it's somebody that I work with, I'm going to be respectful. I'm going to have a filter. I, I want to be compromising and, and and respectful of other people's opinions and whatever. But I'm going to do what's good for me. So if I have been given a boatload of advice from, you know, 100 people that are super close to me. And I take none of it. And I still go with my instincts and what I feel. I'm not going to feel bad. But I'm also not going to feel worried that they're going to be upset. And then if they are upset, and I know they're upset or they express they're upset, I'll listen to them and I'll say, I respect you and your opinion, but I still feel like I need to do what's good for me. So when it comes to, like, not caring what other people think, I do care what other people think. But, you know... I don't know. I would argue that you don't, and you kind of made my point for me in that when you talked about coworkers, you don't want to ruffle feathers. You have to work with these people, so you don't want to just go in guns blazing and insult people. But the reason you don't want to do that is because you have to work with them. You have to show up tomorrow and work with them again. So it's in your best interest. Okay, so I'm selfish and self-serving with not wanting to piss people off. That that's very fair. So. that's not a case where you care what other people think. You you care how your tomorrow Okay, goes. so I have a neighbor. We have a neighbor that I don't like. Yeah. She's a person I don't care I know. About. That's, I'm so jealous of that. And it you doesn't like bother me. Hatfield and McCoy's thing going it's on with her. It's not that bad. It's pretty close. But if she approached, I would not hold back. Yeah. I just... I mean, because it doesn't bother me. Just to be clear, no guns. Ex- Hatfield oh, and yeah. Clear, no. Yeah. Like, Nothing just, like that. Just, you know, sideways glances. And when I hear her laugh, which is an annoying laugh, like this morning, that was, you had your door the door open and I could hear her cackle from across the street. I was like, oh, shut up. But the other neighbor that's new, we had a limb from her tree that was hanging over into our driveway. Yeah. You would have been impaled by the limb because it has grown so much it if you were in your, wrangle, in your wrangler yeah. that's top. We got a ton of rain okay, this spring. Yeah. So I was concerned about... You just going ahead and cutting it down without trying to approach this person. They work a lot. They're not always home. You tried. Twice. Twice even. I was going to say once in a judgy way. You tried once, but now twice I know. So I was concerned about that because we haven't had issues. We we just started to get to know each other. I didn't want to ruffle her feathers. I didn't want to upset her because... You know, it's a, it's her tree, but it's in our property. Yeah. And it would make it impossible for you to drive down the driveway. Right. In the closed car, it was like going through a car wash. Except I don't really want to scrape up the closed car either. Exactly. Exactly. It, it so we were in down. the right. But also, I didn't want to cause, and I didn't want to start an issue with her. Right. The but other- again, I would frame that as you want peaceful cohabitation with a neighbor because that'll make your life better. She has a dog that she could get out there barking while you're sleeping in the morning if she wanted to. So you don't want to start start anything with her. And you're a nice person and you want to be nice to nice people. She seems like a really, really nice person. Yeah, yeah. But you still... Okay. Maybe you care a little bit what people I think. care a little bit. I, I don't care really, a lot. I am really impressed with you because I say that I don't care what people think. And on a conscious level, I don't. But my actions don't prove that. I think the way 
that you don't care what other people think. I think it is a huge key to your successful detachment for me toward the end of my drinking. You really got to the point where you didn't care what happened to me. Uh, you know, I cared a little. But on a day-to-day basis, like if you if there's something tragic were to happen, I would care. But on a day-to-day basis, you're right. I didn't care if you were sad that day. I don't care. Go be sad. Shut up. Just get away from me. I don't want to hear your sadness. I don't want to see your sad-ass face. Just go. And so this mannerism, this trait that you have, this thing that you brought into the relationship and that you have nurtured through the time you've known me, this ability to say what you just said, is really important for our listeners to understand because, you know, despite the frequency with which you cry on this podcast, you are not an empath. You know, an empath is someone that hears somebody else's story and it becomes their story. Like the emotions from it become theirs. They wear it. They, they own it. wear they, it. Yeah. They are right there with They're you. Entrenched in it. And so you you do tear up quite a bit on the podcast. And so it could be assumed if somebody just knew that fact and didn't listen to all the context. In the discussion, it would be easier for someone to say, oh, she just cries all the time because she's an empath. And when she's thinking about her story, she's overlaying it with the stories that she's hearing on a weekly basis. And what a difficult situation to be in. But you're able to shut it off. And you were able to shut me off. And that's very valuable. And the reason I think that's important is because not everybody can do that. And so when we talk about detachment and we explain to people... That it's your only chance, if you are the loved one of an alcoholic, to influence that drinker once they've crossed the line into addiction. You can't beg and plead and cajole and yell at that person to get sobriety, to get help, to find recovery. You can't force them to do that. Your only shot is to detach, take care of yourself. They either will or will not feel threatened by that. In my case, I, I did. When you detached, I got scared to death. You were going to take my kids and go back to Indiana. And I knew that if you filed for divorce because of my drinking and the things I had done, that you would win custody. And I knew that I was going to lose you if I didn't stop drinking. And so that was one of the two things that pushed me over the edge to sobriety and convinced me to stop drinking. Not because you asked me to, but because it was like a show don't tell, right? Not because you asked me to quit drinking, but because I could see you had a foot out the door. For other drinkers, the spouse gets a foot out the door, and because of whatever, because of their upbringing, because I can't put myself in their place and say the reasons. But for whatever reason, maybe they had a foot halfway out the door to begin with. Um, that detachment does not create in them sobriety, does not create in them recovery. They just say, fine, if you want to leave, leave. And so it's not a guaranteed solution. I don't even know if it's a 50% solution to execute a plan of detachment and have that result in recovery for your spouse. But it's the only thing I've ever seen work. So it doesn't have a very good success rate, but it's the only chance you've got. But even with all of that, right, all of that explained, it's still really hard. And you have a unique personality and just kind of brain makeup that makes detachment possible for you. And I don't know that it's possible for everybody. I think there's a lot of people that it would be really, really hard for. And, um, you know, I, I like just think of people that we know because they, 
you know, they're, maybe they're just nicer than I am and they're more loving and more caring and more optimistic and more hopeful. I mean, I got my hope squashed a couple of times by you thinking we were going to stop, you were going to stop drinking or, you know, and then you went back to it, like a couple relapses over that like 10 year span of you trying to become sober. I can only put up with so much I'm, and I'm sure it was influenced by my upbringing, um, you know. I hope you don't take this as an insult if I say that it is not hard for me to picture somebody out there who is more nice hopeful and nice and optimistic and optimistic than you yes, are. Yes, that is so, true. Yeah. No, I do not take that as an insult. But so if you're if you're trying to detach and you're struggling and you're listening to us talk and you're comparing yourself to Sherry's example and you're like, why can't I just do what Sherry did? You have to keep in mind that there are different personality traits out there and your hurdle might be higher to overcome. Well, and then also I think about just the different personality traits and the different severity and the different, um, you know, humans that are the alcoholics. Like, I'm not saying like I could read you and play you. I mean, there were times that I verbalized, oh, maybe we should get a divorce and that would be really hurtful to you. And that would, of course, cause some other sort of argument. So I feel like that was always a kind of a threat and a dangling carrot. Like you were really worried. But when I verbalized it, you also knew that I could retreat from it. So I think me not verbalizing, like you said, showing rather than talking about it. All When you would verbalize it, all the energy would shift to me beating you down until you reversed that. Yeah. I would... Oh, you don't love me anymore. I, I'm, a, I'm a better person. I love you more than you love me. Um, you don't care about the kids. I would say awful, awful things like yeah. that. All in an effort to get you to say, I don't really want to get a divorce. That's the kind of manipulation and gaslighting you had to deal with. And I think a lot of people have to deal with. Exactly. But I knew that... Like, I, I feel like I knew you enough that me just being uninterested... And not wanting to hear your sob story. I knew that that would push you one way or another. Yeah. And and it kind of like put the ball in your court. Like, well, do you want to live like this or do you want to live better? And you tell me which way you want to go. Divorce or sobriety and recovery. Yeah. Well, your authenticity really served you. Served to protect you. Served to help you detach. But it also served me. Because without your authenticity, I don't think we would be sitting here right now. Now, let's compare that to the fact that I am just flat out a fraud. I mean, I am. I talk about I don't care what anybody thinks. And like I said, on a conscious level, I don't. I don't care what anybody thinks about what I do for a living. I don't care what anybody thinks about my beliefs about spirituality, like I just said. Although I don't seem to have the courage to have that conversation with our minister about the whole Jesus thing. I don't, you know, I say that, but there are things that I hide in the same way that I hid the quantity of my alcohol consumption. As we've shared, I never hid that I was drinking, but I often hid how much I was drinking. And the only reason I didn't hide that I was drinking, two reasons were, as you've pointed out, In my family, I grew up and drinking alcohol was not a bad thing. So there was no reason to hide it. Everybody did it. It's a sign of manhood. It's a sign of maturity. It's a sign of success. Why would I hide that I was drinking? But further to that, I didn't hide that I was drinking 
because I didn't think I could get away with it. Like I knew something changed in me as soon as I started drinking. And, you know, like on beer number one, I didn't get get to slurring my words and making poor judgments and get emotionally moody. Uh, so I knew I could hold that together. I could, but I, I just didn't ever imagine that you wouldn't be able to smell beer or whiskey or whatever on my breath. So I never hid that I was drinking. But I do now notice, I've done a lot of kind of thinking about this recently, that there, I am a fraud. There are things that I still hide the way I used to hide the amount that I was drinking, even to this day. Like food, for instance. I am a 50-year-old grown man who answers to no one, except kind of you. <laughs> I was looking. I, I wish that you could have seen my face, but you were looking down because you knew you were afraid to look up to me. That's right. <laughs> Jeez. And, and a cat. I'm in food. okay shape. I could drop a few pounds. We just got back from a trip, and I could drop a few more pounds than I could drop before we went on the trip now. But I have a consistent running habit, consistent exercise habit. Play soccer with the high schoolers that I coach, and hold my own. And so there's lots. And you're strong. There's lots to be physically content with. So why the hell do I hide my eating sometimes? It's sorry. You answer, and then I'll answer. Well, I think that food, like alcohol, has a whole level of shame. Yes. To it in a way, I don't need to answer because you're answering. I mean, just think about all the diet trends and food trends. And, like, we know someone who has a, has, we know someone who just said to us the other day, they think that if they eat any fat at all, that's bad. So, like, no salad dressing on lettuce. Or just eat plain vegetables, no ranch dressing. Those sort of things. Like, they're way out of whack, right? That From what studies show, scientifically like, wrong. Yeah, so like avocado—that's good, healthy fats. Like our brains or cells are made of seventy percent fat. We need fat. Go ahead. Just the up and down that has happened in the diet and food trends. Sure. There is shame and guilt associated with if you like gelato, that's like full on fat. That's. So terrible compared to frozen yogurt that the sugar level is so high. In, yeah, we you went know. through two decades of low-fat, high-sugar diets and thinking that was the way to go. Right. That's 180 degrees wrong. So then there's that shame. And then there's the shame of weight. And there's the shame of enjoyment. Of enjoying your food. If you're going to have... Like I was recently with my sister and she we went to this fancy chocolate place when we were out. And she... She bought some chocolates, and she was like, let's eat them all right now. Like, you know, we shared, we like four of us, and we split, and we really enjoyed and really took our time and ate the fancy chocolates and could really taste the flavors and let it melt on our mouth, you know, on our tongue. But some people think that that's shameful, and they would just shove, even if it's good fancy chocolate, mm. expensive chocolate, shove it in because it would be shameful mm. that you're eating chocolate after you just had, you know, pizza or whatever, something else that's unhealthy. So I think there's just so much shame around food and lack of knowledge and judgment that others bring into it. And it's usually their judgment is based on their own shame and feeling. So they're projecting on you. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Diets or eating choices have forever 
been polarizing and debated and I think what we're learning scientifically now is just that different body types need have different needs and everyone out there has the right you know eating thing that's right for them and it doesn't mean you're going to be a supermodel thin but that's not healthy either to be to be skin and bones like that and so you're right there's so so much shame and judgment and a lot of it gets ingrained so that even when we're feeling confident about ourselves we still have these kind of habitual ingrained um not even just habits but routines and so if if we have the thing that we know is acceptable the way we want to present to the world but then we have the reality and we hide parts of it and i am bad about that and i'm embarrassed to admit it and i'm gonna stop doing it do you think that some of the shame that you have from eating really puts you back in that deeper pit of shame because of the drinking well do you feel like it was it's easier to sink back because we've kind of talked about that yeah, I mean, I think shame is bad for anybody. I think shame is really bad for someone that's had an addiction or compulsion kind of background. Uh, shame is to be avoided at all costs. And so setting parameters that aren't logical, that are just cultural or from our childhood. You know, I was having a conversation with our adult son, our our 19-year-old son yesterday about how, you know, this whole idea of eating three meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner at these certain set times is ridiculous. That's not how the cavemen eat. That's not how, that's not how they ate until like a, a century or two ago. Like this is relatively new in history that we eat this way. And it's not doing us any good necessarily. It does some people good, but it's not good as this is how humans should eat. This is, this is the routine that we should all follow. That's complete crap. And so when I am around other people and I eat the way that feels good to me, which I eat almost nothing until the afternoon, and then I eat a lot for a short period of time, and then I'm good to go. And when I do that with confidence and without feeling judged, I feel great about myself. And I'm just not hungry in the morning, and that's okay. Yeah, That seems to be right for my body type. Yeah. But if I, if I, you know, uh, load up a dinner and then eat a big bowl of ice cream, you know, fuck you if you don't like it. I'm not saying that to you because I know you don't care. But I need to say that to myself. I need to say, I don't care if, if anybody doesn't like it. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. It you're doing what, working. you're doing what you feel good with your body and what works for you. Social but people want to try to act like they can tell you how they're, how you're wrong. Yeah. But you, they're not inside your body. Well, but how many other people have different patterns that they're trying to live up to? And when they have a crack in the armor... I mean, the reason I eat so much at the end of the day is because I'm tired and I'm stressed. And I'm probably dehydrated most days because I don't drink enough water, which I need to work on. And all of the, you know, the do the right thing kind of juice is gone for the day. And so... I'm not alone. And that's okay. It's okay. And so it's worked for you to not have calories in the beginning of the day. And even if you are at calorie deprivation and you know that you're tired, dehydrated, whatever, and you're going to splurge or overeat, at least you haven't already eaten, you know, yeah, that, that works a lot of for calories me. in the beginning and it works for you. But, but I guarantee you people who 
feel guilt from splurging or feel, feel, feel guilt from sweets or carbs when they're trying not to eat sweets or carbs, that guilt they feel, I guarantee you that makes them eat more sweets and carbs. They're going to beat themselves up for a while, then they're going to invent a more austere, a more restrictive plan for some period of time, and then that's not going to work, and they're going to overconsume again. This is, by the way, exactly how high-functioning alcoholism works. I was going to say, gee, that sounds exactly like a pattern that I have lived with you many times about the rules around your drinking. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's like if, you just like you try so hard to contain, 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 and then you just explode. So if you're in the kitchen making dinner, and I can see that we're really close. We're five minutes from dinner. And I'm not going to wait for you to leave the room to grab a handful of potato chips. I'm going to pull out that bag of potato chips, and I'm going to eat them while I talk to you about what you're making for dinner that we're going to eat in five minutes. Yes. And, I'm, and if you say something, I'm not going to care. I'm not going to care. I don't care anymore. Well, I'm going to try not to judge and shame you about that. Well, thank you. But it is kind of funny. But you couldn't even if you tried, because I'm oh, not going to care. Oh, no, really? You just can turn it on and off like that? I don't care. But I think that's very bold and open to have that self-confidence to say, I'm not going to be bothered by my eating habits. I feel good about who I am. I feel good about my body. This is just what makes me, you know, my eating plan just makes me feel better this way. Well, and, and I, it's going away from these rules that you have, yeah. right? That And oh, those rules, rules, when you have rules around eating and stuff, does it make you feel like you're back to, like, the rules of drinking? Trying to contain it and I mean, subdue yes. it and... It goes back to what, when we were talking about religion, I just think people deserve to be happy and they shouldn't be judged by other people. They shouldn't be judged by themselves. We shouldn't have all this restriction. I mean, there's a lot coming out now about the psychology of eating. There's that whole, that company, what are they called? Zoom? Mm -hmm. No, Zoom's the technology. Noom. Noom. Yeah. Um, About the psychology of eating. This is, this is what I was talking to my son about yesterday, who's a psychology major. I'm like, this is going to be a whole huge avenue that's going to open up. Gone are going to be the days of counting calories or counting points, weighing yourself six times a hey, day. Hey, WW, yeah. Big Watchers, they're already down. Jenny Craig, down. Yeah, that's all going bye-bye. And what's going to replace it is finding what's right for your body type, getting comfortable with it. Don't set a bunch of restrictive rules because... God, we've already we already put ourselves under so much stress. Usually, work-related stress, achievement-related stress. We've got these goals, and we're trying to get there, and it puts so much pressure on us. And oh, by the way, also, I'm trying to lose five pounds, and I'm trying to eat this certain way, and that's all going to go bye-bye. And it's going to be about finding what the right psychological fit for you is. So, yes, for me, being restrictive, arbitrarily restrictive, or restrictive based on some government recommendation that flip-flops every 10 years or doesn't flip-flop when it should because in the face of science, they say, well, we've been doing it this way for so long, we can't change now, we'd look silly. Ah! Government advice on eating should be the last place you turn for advice. I think that if you were to take that concept of Noom, I don't know much about it. I just We had a friend that did it and she had success with it because it was the psychology of eating and it was pinpointing your habits and when your weak moments are and and when maybe what you turn to when you're sad because you do have to like talk about your emotions and time of the day and you know when it gives you like it tries to build a program for you to eat so you're 
being sustained Mm -hmm. and you're hitting all those parts of your brain Mm -hmm. that makes you feel full and healthy and good. If you kind of even take that to, and yes, I'm trying to draw this and correlate this back to alcohol because that's what our podcast is sort of about. Good job, Sherry. But um, if you were to like think about that with alcohol, if you were to have an app for when you drink and what your habits are and all that, I wonder... Not that I'm saying, like, moderation and everything is, you know, and alcohol is great and perfect because I think being abstaining, like, just gives you a relief of not having to think about it over or think about it. But I wonder how much how much heartache that could save because it would be talking you through it. Like, are you drinking because you're bored? Are you going to drink because you're, you know, um, lonely? Are you celebrating? Like, what? You know what I mean? I do. And here... here. Here's my response. The first one is, the problem with alcohol is it immediately distorts your cognitive function. First drink changes the way you process information and make decisions. So if you are trying to moderate, that's the reason I'm so anti-moderation. Because as soon as you start drinking alcohol, the whole plan that you had is gone. And for most of us, we're going to drink whatever the hell we want. So alcohol and food are different in that way. When I eat food, it doesn't distort my cognitive doesn't distort. Function. It hits your dopamine, but sometimes, or satisfies you, but it doesn't. Now, okay. keeping control of food is a greater challenge. I have a ton of empathy for folks that have eating problems that are more significant than mine because we can't not eat. We cannot drink. Like the easy answer for alcohol is just don't drink. And then you don't have to deal with the mental gymnastics and the moderation and all that horrendous awfulness but you can't not eat you have to eat so i have a ton of empathy for folks that face challenges with eating all of that said if you think of the the judgment that i have been exposed to by others the judgment i have put on myself eating related and then you overlay that or correlate that with early sobriety it's a recipe for disaster because you eat outside the bounds of what you, these arbitrary limits you put on, and you feel bad about yourself. Shame spiral. Guess what? When you're in early sobriety, you might not just go and eat more food when you're feeling bad about yourself. You might drink. So the relationship is there for sure between these kind of food restrictions and trying to find sobriety. And Um, these food restrictions make it really difficult. That's why many, many people say, listen, while I'm trying to get sober, I'm not going to worry about how many cigarettes I smoke. I'm not going to worry about how many calories I put in my body. I'm just not going to deal with that right now. I'm going to let myself be satisfied in all these other ways because I'm just going to focus on not drinking for now. But it's a huge challenge. Also on my list of reasons that I'm a fraud, social media. I don't for the most part, really like social media. I I do truly believe that there are big problems, especially for adolescents, with comparison and FOMO. And, you know, people don't post pictures of themselves, you know, at their low times. They post pictures on vacation when everyone's smiling and in a bathing suit and tanned. And so when adolescents compare themselves to that, I think that's really, really dangerous. So I have some serious concerns about social media, but for the most part, I just don't like it. I don't enjoy it. 
But I do find myself scrolling, looking for cat videos to share with you sometimes. Or we've expanded it to animal videos. Yeah. Well, I'm mostly looking for cats. Okay. I know you have expanded. I, I heard a person call it today called doom scrolling. Yeah, I've heard and that. And I was like, oh, that's great. Just scrolling out of boredom, just scrolling because it's there. It's in our hand or it's in our pocket. We're bored. But the fraud part comes for me that I have been quick to tell everyone. I hate social media. I don't think it's useful. And I don't use it. And, you know, when I, anytime, I'll catch myself. If I reference something that I found on social media, I'll be quick to be like, oh, I, I don't really do social media. Uh, I just, I was on my way, you know, to the grocery store and this thing popped on my phone when I was trying to navigate or whatever. You know, I, I tried, I've always got a reason why I was on social media. I saw this thing, but I don't, I don't do social media. One of my friends sent it to me. Yeah. 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 Somebody, you know, stuck their phone in my face and, cause I don't do social media. And so for a long time I have, let's just make it bigger than social media. Let's include television in this. I have considered what I consume media wise to be a sign of who I am. So like. I would never admit to I would never admit to sitting down and binge watching a season of something. When I hear other people say that, I have a little judgment myself, which I'm embarrassed to admit. But is there any tinge of jealousy in there because they yeah, have the time to do that or yeah. they, they they allow themselves that release and that let go and then they verbalize it and they're like Yes. That's it. And in full disclosure, when I have been sick I have binge-watched a whole bunch of 30 Rock, and I have binge-watched that when I was sick this winter, that uh, the new one on Amazon that I liked. Somebody in the Six. Dixie in the Six. or Oh, yeah. It's not Dixie. Daisy. Daisy in the Six. Really good short-run series. They don't call those miniseries. They call them... Many series when we were little Yeah, kids. but they don't use that word anymore. I know. It's a series, know. but it's not going to go on forever. Limited series, I think they call it. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I would, you know, when I would hear people talking about, what's some of the popular stuff that's... God, I don't know. We don't have Netflix. We don't have Hulu. I don't know (laughs) shit. No, but like the the Pirates of the Caribbean trial. Oh, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Johnny Depp trial. When everyone was talking about that around the water cooler, I couldn't lower myself to having any comments about that because I wouldn't waste my time. Now, truth is I didn't watch it, but not because... I'm above it. I just, that one didn't get me. I do watch some trash television and I do scroll social media sometimes looking for cat videos. Like the Duggars, Happy Shiny People. You just watched that. Yeah, I did. In a in a quick succession, might I add. Yeah, I, the four, those were four episodes and I watched them in like two days. Yeah. Spent a lot of time on that. And uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah. But that's the kind of thing that I have in the past... And I don't know, that's probably not as common as my, my food stuff. But the point is but I'm the, a fraud. Let's stick to the point. Well, what happens, like you you say, you know, I I know that I don't like social media. You don't necessarily like it. We use it for our nonprofit. We have three pages. And you also know that that's the way that you keep up with some long-distance family and friends. It's not like you're on it all the time and you're always posting a bunch of stuff. We would, back in the day, have called it a voyeur. Yeah, exactly. I'm the typical middle-aged male. I don't post at all. I just look at other people's stuff. Yeah. Or don't post much anyway. Yeah. 
Or you'll repost something. I'm a good reposter of things. I didn't post our 13-year-old, our 16-year-old's, our 21-year-old's birthday at all on Facebook. And that all happened since the end of December of 22. And I'm like, look at, I look at all my friends that are posting great things about their kids. But also I've decided, do my kids want to be on social media? I didn't ask them. Yeah. So I'm going to be respectful of them because I'm like, I don't know. Like, do they want their face out there? You know, because I'm old and I use Facebook. So the kids all use Snapchat. And they're like, you're such an old fart, Mom, using Facebook. Yeah. And then I'll just text pictures to our close relatives. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're, you, can, you can give yourself a little bit of grace. You're not a total fraud in that. Well, the fact is that you know, I, the truth is I grew up being judged kind of passive aggressively. That continues to this day about things like food and what we, what we consume, you know, our lifestyle choices and ways. Yeah. And I do a lot of self judging. I, you know, hold myself to high standards that, you know, and then when I violate my high standards, that leads to a need for relief. And thankfully, now, because I'm beyond alcohol, that just means, you know, I'm going to probably eat something crappier. I'm going to sulk for a little while. And I don't know. doesn't happen a ton. But when I was a drinker, that meant drinking. That meant drinking. And that's what it means for a ton of people who suffer from addiction. And so all of this self-judgment and righteous passive aggressive judgment that takes place in the world it's got to go so i am vowing to and i'm going to use a term that one of our friends in echoes of recovery uses because i like it and i'm not going to give attribution because i don't want this person because i don't have the right to share this this person's name but this person talks about a vow of radical honesty. And I am taking a vow of radical honesty. My only secrets, honesty. Sherry... What? Honesty? Radical honesty. What did I say? I'm just making sure you said radical honesty. Yeah, radical okay. honesty. I'm going to not hide the guilty pleasures that I enjoy. The only thing that we... Instagram cat videos, our yes. cat Freddy... Oh, I'm going to run around and show them to our kids. <laughs> I might go across the street to that neighbor you don't like and start showing her some of my cat videos. It's going to be awesome. The only thing that's going to be a secret is going to be sex. And listeners to this podcast are probably like, what are you talking about? You talk about sex all the time. Believe it or not, there are 90% of our sex life people don't know anything about. Because that's a cultural hurdle that I don't think our society is ready to give up on like there is still privacy around sex and probably because it's called be. intimacy yeah probably should be like i'm not not trying to tear down i that mean that just here. seems dumb <laughs> thanks for the radical, radical honesty <laughs> sure you appreciate that <laughs> but no that's i and i feel that won't make me feel guilty it won't make me feel guilty if you and i try something new and then i don't tell anyone that won't make me feel guilty that'll probably make everyone that we know thankful Exactly. And you thankful, and I'm, that won't make me feel at all, no guilt at all. But I'm not going to hide anything else. That's just, just radical honesty. And because, and, and there is a payoff to this. When, I, 
when I am vulnerable, when I am honest, which frankly is a lot these days, I feel so good about myself. Even when I get criticized for it, which honestly isn't all that often. But it just feels great to be honest and vulnerable. I just, I had a writing group this week, an in-person writing group, and we all wrote and I wrote something that I'd never shared with anybody before. And I read it and all these people sitting around the table kind of looked aghast a little bit and I felt so good. And then they were like, that's great. I can't believe you shared that with us. How cool is that? Hope you feel better. I have similar things to talk about. You know, it's great. It's great when people relate. Don't you feel like you're, you're lighter after you're carrying something like that, whether it's something small or something big? 100%. Definitely lighter. So what's the secret you'd like to tell everybody, Sherry, so you can be lighter right now? You got anything? Well, I know everybody probably thinks I'm just all cats all the time, but I'm an equal opportunity dog video watcher now. Mm. Lots of silly dog shows. And I I have a lot of animals um, on my social media. Um, But really my big secret is that I'm technologically inept, so therefore I only stick to Facebook and Instagram because I know them and I wouldn't want to try any other social media thing. Yeah. So. Okay. That's that's a little bit. Do you feel better? Mm. That's not all that secret. Well, I you put me on the spot. I You're can't right. think of anything. You're right. I that's just, my fault. Yeah. Yeah. So vulnerability has been such a blessing in our lives, so I'm going to take it all the way. Oh. Uh, after I watched the um, thing about the 20 kids people, what are their names again? The Duggars. The Duggars. I watched, people. so I was, I'm like, I love documentaries. I've always loved documentaries. I don't really like true crime, but there's so many true crime documentaries because that's like the most popular thing in the world right now that I kind of have to watch some. And I watched this one about Lorena Bobbitt. You remember her? The very justified woman who cut her husband's penis off oh and my then God. dumped it. Yes. That was 30 years ago. And I, at the time I was in college. And believe it or not, as a college male, I didn't care much. I didn't get into that story. I, I didn't even remember until I watched the documentary how the court case came out. But oh my God. That, that woman was abused mentally, physically, sexually abused in just hideous ways that I'm not even going to say out loud. The fact that there was even a moment's consideration to putting her in jail is disgusting. And I hope that we've made progress in 30 years. And I think in some ways we have, but I think in others we haven't. And it makes me sad. But there, there's my admission. I watched a four-part series on Lorena Bobbitt. Yes. And her despicable well, husband. Who had a horrible childhood too, which explains why he did what he did, but doesn't make it yeah. okay. But hopefully when others embrace radical honesty, sharing their stories and being vulnerable, we can help shift the culture to allow like in Lorena Bobbitt's case, so many people wanted to make her this crazy, angry, vindictive woman when really she was just abused in a shell of who she should be. Yeah. So maybe we're opening the door by being vulnerable. Radically honest. What was fascinating about that, they interviewed psychologists who said, some psychologists got it, but they interviewed psychologists that were testifying on the part of the state who 
was prosecuting her who said that it's not feasible for her to have this blank spot in her memory where she doesn't remember actually cutting his penis off. Oh my God! Just from what we've learned through the trauma that people are exposed to in alcoholic relationships, it's absolutely possible for people to have blank out spots. With not being the, the drunk. Yeah, where the, absolutely, where the trauma gets so intense that they really can't remember what happened. And so the idea that psychological medical professionals 30 years ago didn't know that is really kind of scary. But it's also proof of how far we've come. Yep. So keep fighting the good fight. In total honesty. Now, I'm going to go think about what kind of ice cream I'm going to have tonight. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.